Well, good morning. Welcome to Gathering Church. My name is Matthew. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm grateful that God's brought us together. Grateful to see uh, folks that are in town to celebrate Brooke and Johnny's wedding. Sam and Gracie are here, which is great. Good to see you, brother and sister and founding member of the Gathering Church. Chris's son. So this morning we continue our series as we look at the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And uh, we've been saying and have said that the Holy Spirit is the prominent and pervading promise of the Old Testament. The prominent and pervading promise of the Old Testament is that God's Spirit would indwell His people. Isaiah Said, for I will pour water on the thirsty land and the streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. The promise of the new covenant that comes to us in Jeremiah or in Ezekiel chapter 36 says, I will give you a new heart and I will put a new spirit within you. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey my rules. Again, Joel says, And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams, and your young men will see visions. Even on the female and male servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. Everyone in the new covenant receives the indwelling spirit of God. It is the prominent and pervading promise of the Old Testament, which is not surprising that in many places, at least two come to mind, Paul refers to the Holy Spirit as the promised Spirit. Galatians chapter 3, verse 14, In Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. The Spirit indwelling us is the promise of the Old Testament fulfilled in the coming of the new covenant. The life, death, and resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ culminates in the sending of his spirit on the first Christians in the book of Acts and even onto us when we are converted. Last week we said that we need to start before talking about the ministry of the manifestation of the Holy Spirit's gifts in our lives. We need to start by talking about something else first. So we're spending some time going through 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and I thought it appropriate to start today's sermon with a quote from David Koresh, the cult leader from Waco a few decades back. This is what he used to teach his people. Is a direct quote. Are you really a Christian? The apostles of old would heal the sick and raise the dead. Do you do these things? How can these stupid churches talk about the Spirit when they don't do what the apostles did 2,000 years ago? So they sin against the Holy Spirit. They claim to be led by the Spirit when they are, in fact, led by the devil. How do you know you have the Spirit, he asks. How do you know you have the Holy Spirit, David Koresh asked. And it is literally the opposite of what Paul says in the beginning of 1 Corinthians chapter 13. It is literally the opposite that Paul teaches us in the first chapters and first verses of 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Because the problem that Paul lays out for us in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 is that you can be gifted and not converted. You can be gifted and not converted. You can speak in the tongues of men and of angels. You can have prophetic powers. Even, Paul will tell us, you can understand all mysteries and all knowledge and have nothing. Be nothing. The mark of a supernaturally changed heart is not giftedness. The mark of a supernaturally changed heart is love for God and love for his people. Jonathan Edwards will say that true virtue rests in religious affections. 
A true Christian virtue, the heart of what it means to be a Christian is that you have affections, you have desires for God. Desires for God, love for God, and then in turn love for his people. Speaking abilities don't indicate a supernaturally changed heart. Prophetic abilities are not an indication of a supernaturally changed heart. Only love for God and love for his people are the marks and signs of a truly supernaturally changed heart. The marks of a heart that has been converted by the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit shows itself first and foremost in your life and in your neighbor's life by giving you affections for God. The God that you formerly hated, you now love because the Holy Spirit has converted you, set his spirit upon you, and given you affections for Jesus Christ. That's the mark of a supernaturally changed heart first and foremost. Love is more amazing than miracles. Which is why we read it today in our scripture reading. Paul says to us that the fruit of the Spirit, first and foremost, Galatians chapter 5, verse 22, the fruit of the Spirit is love. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. The fruit of the Spirit is virtue. The fruit of the Spirit is Christian character. The fruit of the Spirit is changed affections for God and for neighbor. So let's read the next section of our text here, which is 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 4 through 7. I'll read to us 1 through 7 by way of context, and then we'll unpack it together. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have and I deliver my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. This is God's word for us this morning. Let us pray. Father, we ask for your help now as we look to your perfect and holy word. Lord, I deeply resonate with Trevor's prayer that I am a sinful, weak man, and your word is perfect and right and true. So we ask, and I ask for your help as I open this text. And Lord, we pray that as we look to this monumental description of love, and as we feel just crushed by it, God, that we would see the love of God in Jesus Christ. We pray and I pray that at the end of this sermon, every heart would be enamored with the wonderful love of God that has so manifest itself to us in the person and work of your Son, our Savior and Lord. We ask for your help now in Jesus' name. Amen. So the first point here, point one, is the rebuke. Point one is the rebuke. Uh, last night, as I've already mentioned, some of us were at a wedding, and uh, that wedding in some ways symbolizes the end of an era. There's not another Taylor girl to be married for now. Um, you never know what God could do. And what Paul says here in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 is probably the most famous piece of literature on the, 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 the subject of love. It's, it's read in, in, many, in many weddings. Uh, it's, it's, it's read uh, by, by secular authors and, 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 and secularists that don't necessarily believe the Bible as a, as a wonderful picture and a description of what love is. But uh, what Paul's doing here in these first few verses, chapter 4 through 7, uh, is, is quite interesting. 
Because what he's not doing is he's not all of a sudden, you know, tapping his pen on his tongue and saying, you know, what, what is love anyway? I, I think I'll just pontificate for a, a bit here and describe what love is. Rather, what he's doing is he's offering a scathing rebuke to the Corinthians. He's offering what we read at weddings and we put on coffee cups and cross-stitch things is a massive rebuke to the Corinthians. The reason for that, the reason that the first readers would read this as a massive rebuke is because there are seven verbs that come to us in verses 4 through 6, and he's already used five of them previously in the letter to describe the Corinthians. So when he says love is this, but it's not this, it's this, but it's not this, it's this, but it's not this, five of those, he's already described the Corinthians' behavior in those terms previously in the letter. It says it does not envy. Love does not envy. This is a term that Paul will bring up in chapter 3, verse 3. He says, you're still in the flesh because there's jealousy and strife among you. You are not of the flesh. Why are you behaving in this human way? It's jealousy. It's envy. He says there's envy and strife among you in the church. He'll say in chapter 4, verse 17, he says, this is why I sent Timothy to you, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ and to teach them everywhere in the church because some of you are arrogant. He calls them arrogant, which is the same word for envy. He'll say, love does not boast, which means to brag, which means... (laughs) In BDAG, which is the standard Greek lexicon, it says an inordinate desire to call attention to oneself. There's an inordinate desire in us to bring attention to ourselves. And he's already said that this is what the Corinthians do. They think they have wisdom in 3.18. They're puffed up with knowledge. They think they're spiritual. He'll say in chapter 14, verse 37. And the point that he's trying to make is that it's not possible have a loving disposition to be a loving person and to brag and boast at the same time. One commentator said, described it this way, Gordon Fee described this word as being a windbag. <laughs> being a windbag, always, ta- always talking about yourself, always talking about you and putting the focus on you and so on and so forth. To be a boaster, to behave, Fee goes on, to behave as a braggart. To constantly be talking about yourself and focused on yourself and getting others to look at you. And he says it's absolutely contrary to the way of love. Feel bad yet? We're just getting started. He says that love is not proud. Love's not proud. It's a word that he'll use in chapter 4 again in verse 6. He'll use it in chapter 5, verse 2. He'll use it in chapter 8, verse 1. It means to be puffed up. It means to have an exaggerated self-conception. An exaggerated self-conception. To think highly of yourself. And to think more highly of yourself than you probably should. He says, I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us to not go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. He's describing what being puffed up looks like in the congregation. It's, it's favoring someone rather than another. It's, there being, it's, it's cliques in the church. It's certain social groups that others can't break into in the church. And he's saying all these things are contrary to love. So this is coming at them as a massive rebuke. He's already said all these words to them. So imagine it's like telling your children, you sit them down and you've said, you've done this, you've done this, you've done this, you've done this, and then you juxtapose that to what a loving person is. By the way, love is patient, love is kind. He says love's not rude. It's not rude. He'll use that term in his description of how the Lord's table is being handled in chapter 11. The way that there is party spirit happening at the Lord's Supper at the church in Corinth. He just says it's rude. 
Certainly, we could describe it in these other terms of, of, of an exaggerated self-conception. We could describe it in, in, a, in a boastful perception. But he just flat out says, it's rude. Which means to just behave disgracefully, dishonorably, and indecently. They're just behaving disgracefully in the way that they treat each other when they come together to eat and to celebrate what Jesus has done for them. And finally... He says that love is not self-seeking. It's not self-seeking. It does not insist on its own way. It does not insist on its own way, which he'll say to us the same phrase in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 24, let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of of his neighbor. And Paul is teaching the Corinthians and he's teaching us that love is quite literally the opposite of much of what he said to them earlier in his letter. It's a rebuke, and that's the first point. The first point is that 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 4 through 7 should be read as a scathing rebuke of the behavior of the Corinthians. His point is that this church is a very gifted church. As we saw last week, it's a gifted church. They're speaking in tongues, and they have prophetic powers, and they have faith to move mountains. And he says all of that is nothing if they don't have love. Which is why it's imperative for us as a local church to press this issue hard before we start talking about spiritual giftedness. Because if we don't first learn to love one another, then our spiritual giftedness will mean nothing. It'll be a clanging gong and a noisy symbol. Our spiritual giftedness won't actually build each other up. It won't actually edify one another as God has intended it to. If we don't first have love and seek the good of our brother and sister. Because it is so challenging. We know this. It is so challenging that when we are gifted, when we are good at something, when God maybe does give us a spiritual insight, it is so easy. I can confess this. We all can confess. It is so easy to find our worth, our significance in it. It is so easy for us to suddenly elevate ourselves above our brothers and sisters because we have a certain gifting. And this is, this is the razor's edge, right? This is, I mean, we are right on it right here. Because it is so hard for us to not do that. This description of love just crushes us to the dust. It's so challenging this week to prepare for the sermon, thinking about all these things that he describes about being rude, about bragging, about having exaggerated self-conception. It's just like, I'm done. <laughs> I'm toast. So we've talked about it abstractly. We've talked about it abstractly. Last week I've kind of talked about it abstractly, somewhat abstractly now, but for the rest of the sermon I want to try to press it into us practically. What would it look like for us as a Christian community, as a local assembly, as a church, as a congregation to be marked by this kind of love? And then the third point that we'll close with is how do we get it? What does it look like? And then how do we get it? Paul says that one thing does equal true spirituality, and that is love. But how do you know? How do you know? Because I can imagine that at least some of the people in Corinth would say, yeah, I'm a loving person. I don't think they all would just immediately say, nope, I just care about myself. So how do you know? How do you know? Uh, here's one definition. As I was seeking for one and searching for one that I thought would be helpful to us, I came across this quote from John Piper, pastor, theologian from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. And he described two different kinds of love, what he called complacent love and benevolent love. Complacent love 
and benevolent love. He says, complacent love is something like this. I love pizza. I love pizza. I find myself pleased by the qualities I find in pizza, namely its taste. I have complacent love for pizza as well. My wife has an inordinate complacent love for pizza. (laughs) Scotty's pizza. That is a love of complacency. Or you might say a love of place or a love of country or a love of things. You say you love something because they are lovely. You love something because they are pleasing to you. It's easy to love things that are lovely to us. Right? It's easy to love things that are lovely to us. But he says, the love of benevolence, because here's the rub. The love of benevolence is not based on the loveliness of the object. The love of benevolence is based on your goodwill, your benevolence toward the person or thing that you are loving. Your aim in that kind of love is to do good. Your aim in that kind of love is to bring about something and make it beautiful, not simply to respond to its beauty. A benevolent love aims to make something else beautiful. The source of that kind of love is not in the object's loveliness. The source of the love is something else. The source of the love comes from some a desire to make that thing great, to make that thing lovely, to make that thing beautiful. So, Piper says, the most beautiful love in the world is the divine love of God that pays the highest price, the life of the Son of God, for completely undeserving enemies. To give us the longest and greatest happiness in the universe. The aim and the display and the picture of the greatest kind of love that can be seen in the universe is the love of God shown to us in the death of the Son of God to completely undeserving enemies. The love of God did not seek you and pursue you because you are lovely. There was not something missing within the divine nature, within the Godhead that said, you know what, we're kind of lonely here being God. I need Matthew Cunningham to make us feel better. No, not at all. Why'd you laugh? (laughs) The love of God sought you and me to make it beautiful. Listen to Martin Luther. If you ever get an email from me, this is at the bottom of my email. It's a quote that I have down there. It's from Martin Luther's Heidelberg Disputation. It says, The love of God does not seek, but it creates that which is pleasing to it. The love of God loves failures, fools, and weaklings. Therefore, sinners are not loved because they are attractive, but they are attractive because they are loved. I have to read it again. The love of God loves failures, fools, and weaklings. Therefore, sinners are not loved because they are attractive, but they are attractive because they are loved. Love is to do good to something, and it makes something beautiful, and it doesn't necessarily respond to its initial beauty. So then the question is, as we're trying to plunge the depths of how do you know, here's one question we can ask. Who is it for? When we do an act towards another person, who is it for? Who are you doing the thing for? Are you doing the thing for you or are you doing the thing for them? Are you doing the thing for you or are you doing the thing for them? Look, it's so easy. We can give just very simple illustrations and examples from this. When we give a gift to a friend and they don't respond the way that we want them to and we feel slighted, we feel hurt, we feel upset, who are we doing the thing for? Why were we giving them the thing, the gift, 
the gift certificate, the night off. Are we doing it for us so that we can be seen as a gracious, kind person, a person that doesn't consider himself more highly than he should? Are we doing it for them? Are we doing it for them? A clanging symbol And a clanging, uh, clashing symbol, a clanging gong is the sound, as commentators will note, is the sound of the pagan temple that's just up the hill from Corinth. And pagan worship is making much of yourself. It's a definition of pagan worship is to make much of yourself. And the people of Corinth had gone to Corinth, as we said last week, to make a name for themselves. Everything they do, they do for themselves. They speak well, they're savvy in business, they're smart, they have insights, they have faith to move mountains, and so on and so forth. They can start ministries, but it's all for themselves. Here's a longer story. Here's a quote from Spurgeon. Others have used it before, but here's a longer illustration. Spurgeon tells this story. Charles Spurgeon was a Baptist preacher in London in the 19th century. He says, once upon a time, there was a king who ruled over everything in a land. And one day, there was a gardener who grew this enormous carrot. And he took it to the king, and he said, my lord, this is the greatest carrot that I've ever grown or ever will grow, and therefore, I want to give it to you. I want to present it to you as a token of my love and my respect for you. And the king was so touched And he discerned the man's heart. And so the king in turn said to his servant, he said, Wait, you are a great steward of the earth. Clearly, you've grown this carrot. He says, I want to give you a plot of land. As freely as you've given to me, I want to give you this massive plot of land so that you can garden it. And the gardener was amazed, and he was delighted, and he went home rejoicing. But there was a nobleman in the king's court, who overheard all this, and he said to himself, well, if that's what you can get for a carrot, what can I get if I give the king something better? And so the next day, the nobleman came before the king, and the nobleman was raised horses, and he had this beautiful, tall, handsome, black stallion. And he presented it, and he bowed low, and he said, my lord, I breed horses And this is the greatest horse that I will ever breed. And therefore, I want to give it to you and present it to you as a token of my love and respect. But the king discerned his heart and said, thank you. (laughs) And he took the horse and he dismissed him. And the nobleman was perplexed. And he asked the king, he gave you this carrot But I gave you this beautiful black stallion, which is worth more. And the king said, let me explain. The gardener was giving me the carrot, but you were giving yourself the horse. The gardener was truly giving me the carrot, but you were giving yourself the horse. Which hopefully illustrates the point that we're trying to make here, which is who are you doing it for? Is the definition of love? Is it a complacent love? And there's nothing wrong about that kind of love. We all, we all love things that are lovely. There's nothing wrong with that. C.S. Lewis said it like this. He says, if you do someone a kindness, do you do it to show him or yourself or others what a fine chap you are? To put him in your debt and then to sit down and wait for his gratitude? If you do, you will surely be sorely disappointed. And how do we know? We know, of course, because our feelings are hurt when the respect or approval doesn't come or the gratitude doesn't come that we think we deserve. D.A. Carson, who's written a commentary on this passage that we're looking at, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14, he has a quote and a description of this, and he says that the real distinction... And 1 Corinthians 13 is between between egocentric and altruistic love. The real distinction that's being drawn here is between egocentric, love for you, 
or altruistic love, which means no self-interest in it. It's simply for the sake of the other. He says the line of demarcation is drawn between love for God and man and love for self. Love for God and man and love for self. So here's the point. The point is that love always gives itself away. Love is always a self-giving sacrifice. Love is a self-giving sacrifice. Love always gives itself away and seeks to create something beautiful in another human being, in another person. The paradox here, of course, and we'll get to the answer. I hope I can give us the answer. The paradox, of course, is that we need to be unconditionally loved. We know we need to be unconditionally loved, but we struggle so much to love unconditionally. We know that we need to be loved because when we read this description of love, we're honest with ourselves, we know we don't match up. We don't have the merits here that are described as love. We know that if we're going to be loved, it can't be based on the things that we've done. It can't be based on our merits. It has to be a love that transcends that. It has to be some kind of unconditional love. We know that, and yet we struggle so hard to give it. It's a paradox. The thing that we know we need, we struggle so hard to give to other human beings because only God can love this way. Only God can give and give and give and give and not need to receive. Only God, because God already has everything. This doctrine, if this doctrine sounds like it's psychologically unhelpful that God doesn't need you, he doesn't need you, okay? That might sound psychologically unhelpful, but if you think about it, it is the most profound truth that you actually need because he doesn't need you, and yet he gives and gives and gives and gives and has no need to receive, It's the most spiritually healthy and psychologically healthy thing you can imagine. That there is a God who loves you unconditionally, not based on your merits, but based on the merits of his son, Jesus Christ. We can only love this way. We can only love this way. We can only begin to be this way. And I'm going to tip my hand here because I... The description of love here in 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7 isn't a checklist. The description of love here is describing almost a person. It's not saying, do this, do this, do this, do this. It's saying, this is simply what it is. This is what a lovely, loving person does. It's love personified. And commentators, almost without fail, suggest to us that Paul is describing the man, Jesus Christ. He's describing to us what love personified looks like. Let me give you an example of what love looks like. Another story, this one's from Stanley Hauerwas, who is a professor of theology at Duke Divinity School. He says, I once knew a very old couple who radiated a tremendous happiness the wife especially, who was almost unable to move because of old age and illness, and then whose kind old face showed the joys of sufferings of many years and had etched a hundred wrinkles on her face, but she was filled with such gratitude for life that I was touched to the quick. Involuntary, I just asked myself, what could possibly be the source of this kindly old person's radiance? Because otherwise, they were very common people. And their room that I was sitting in indicated only the most modern, excuse me, most modest of comforts. But suddenly, I knew where it all came from. Because I saw these two speaking to each other. And I saw their eyes hanging upon each other. And all at once it became clear to me that this woman was dearly loved. It was as if she was like a stone that had been lying in the sun for many, many years, absorbing all of its radiant warmth, and it was now reflecting back cheerfulness and warmth and serenity. This woman, Hauerwas points out, became 
a lovely, warm, radiant woman because she'd been loved sacrificially by her husband for so many years. It's a profound mystery. The love of God creates and makes something beautiful. And that kind of act of actually loving another human being, God has allowed us to participate in that. And when we love someone else unconditionally, self-giving, not based on their merits, but based on the merits of Jesus Christ who's loved us first and we then love them, we're actually, by God's grace, helping to create someone who is lovely. So four things. I'll unpack for us real quick here. We've already talked about verses 4 through 6. Unpacking what each of those terms mean. We've got a definition for love. So let's get some practical things in verse 7. The four pantas. The four all. All things. It bears all things. It believes all things. It hopes all things. It endures all things. Uh, The overarching description of these four verses, I think, is best said by Gordon Fee. Again, the commentator on this passage. He says, love has a tenacity in the present It is buoyed by its absolute confidence in the future that enables it to live in every kind of circumstance and to continually pour itself out for others. It is, it's tenacious in the present. It's moving, it's active, it's zealous in the present. It doesn't quit. It's not soft, it's not weak, it's not lighthearted. It's tenacious in the present because it's buoyed in the absolute confidence of the future. We know the end. We know what's going to happen. We don't have to worry what's going to happen if we act a certain way in the present, if we give ourselves away. Because we know the end is sure. First, he says that love bears all things. It means that it covers. Love covers for one another. It means that love, in a sense, conceals or excuses at times the faults of others instead of just gladly disclosing them. Uh, There's such a desire, there's such a sinful desire in us, there's such a sinful desire in me to expose the sinful deeds of others, to make myself look better by comparing myself or subtly making comments about somebody else. He says, but love... He says, but love bears all things. Love, it says, covers for another. It conceals the excuses or faults instead of gladly disclosing them. Charles Hodge says that it bears them in silence. It bears in silence all annoyances and troubles. The point is, One of the implications of Paul's saying is that if we actually love this way, a kind of love that bears, a kind of love that covers, it's actually going to cost us something. It's actually going to cost us something. It is not easy to bear the injuries from another person. It is not easy to look the other way at someone's misgivings and shortcomings. The only way to do it is to take it upon yourself and bear it yourself. It's the decision that every time you have the opportunity to replay the tape, remember what that person said to you, remember what that person said about you, remember what they did to you, remember how ungrateful they were for the way that you served them. Every time there's the temptation to play the tape in your head, you bear it yourself. When there's a temptation, when somebody else is telling a story and you go, well, I I can relate to that. Let me tell you what happened to me. And there's a sense you're subtly licking your wounds in that moment. You're making yourself better. You're making them pay for the injury done to you by subtly defaming their reputation and character. But to bear actually costs us something because we have to take it upon ourselves. Love believes all things. Love believes all things. To believe all things, as Fee puts it, is to entrust oneself to an entity in complete confidence. 
to entrust oneself to an entity, let's say a person or a group of persons, a local church, in complete confidence. The implication is that there's a total commitment to the one who is trusted. There's a total commitment. To believe all things means to have a total commitment to the ones who's trusted. It means, in local church level, it means that you're radically devoted and committed to a local church. It means that you are willing, we say in our membership covenant, that we invite loving criticism into our lives. It's an absolute trust in a group of fallen sinful human beings Believing and hoping and trusting that it's God's good design, that He actually works through broken people. It's not a trust and a confidence necessarily in those people, it's a trust and confidence in God's good design through those people. Membership and connection to a local church is radically important. It's radically crucial if love is going to be cultivated in your life. So to actually become a, to, 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 to personify, to be what Paul's describing in, 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 in verse 7 there, means that you actually have to entrust yourself to people. It's a scary endeavor. <laughs> it's a scary endeavor to entrust yourself to people who are sinful just like you are. But it's God's good design that we would bear one another's injuries and still be radically committed to each other. That's a definition of any significant relationship. The radical devotion that we have to our spouses, to another human being, completely entrusting ourselves to them, knowing that they're going to harm us, knowing that they're going to let us down, knowing that they're going to do things in our lives that are going to be painful and challenging and difficult, and still to be radically committed to them. Because on the backside, we end up like that couple. We end up like that church described in Stanley Hauerwas' article. People that have been loved. Because the converse is true. If you're not radically committed to a group of people, then you can never actually experience what it is for someone to forbear against you. Have we ever considered that? How many times, how many people in this room, how often is our spouse showing us love by forbearing our weaknesses, our failures, our shortcomings? And for us to experience that, and we see that, and we see that these people, and my wife, or my spouse, or my friend, or the other church member, actually loves me, knows my weaknesses, and is still committed to me, knows my shortcomings, knows my failures, and is still willing to be radically devoted and committed to me. So love bears, love believes, love hopes. Hopes, we've already somewhat talked about it, so I'll be brief here. Love hopes all things, which means a radical confidence in the future. It's a confidence in the future. It's a confidence in the future and believing that God knows the end and God has ordained the beginning from the end. And it allows you, it gives you a freedom to be tenacious in the moment, to show a tenacious kind of love in the moment. And third, fourth rather, Love endures all things. Love endures all things. The word here is the same word that's used in James chapter 1, which means to remain steadfast, to stand up under something, to hold one's ground, to maintain a belief or a course of action in the face of opposition. It remains to stand, to remain under, to remain in the situation, to endure. It's an active idea here. It's not a weak idea. I mean, James says, having done all, or Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6, but James also says to remain steadfast means to stand. It's an active stance. It means there's effort involved in it. It means to maintain a belief or course of action in the face of opposition. The verb here, this is a quote, the verb here denotes not a patient, resigned acquiescence, but an active, positive fortitude. It is the endurance of a soldier who in the thick of battle is not dismayed, but continues to lay about him vigorously. Love is not overwhelmed, but plays its part, whatever the difficulties. Endures all things. It means when things get challenging, and things get difficult. 
love remains. So point three, how to get it. Now that we've been, <laughs> now that we've been taken aback by such a radical description here, let me get us two ways on how to see it and how to get it. And the first, again, is somewhat counterintuitive. The first way is somewhat counterintuitive. I owe this to uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer and his book Life Together. He says, whoever would love and serve must first learn to think little of himself. Paul says, let no man think more highly of himself than he ought. Thomas Akempis says, this is the highest and most profitable lesson, truly to know and to despise ourselves. To have no opinion of ourselves and to think always well and highly of others is a great wisdom and perfection. Be not wise in your own eyes. Bonhoeffer will go on to say that only he who lives by the forgiveness of his sins in Jesus Christ will rightly think little of himself. He will know that his own wisdom reached the end of its tether when Jesus forgave him. He remembers the ambition of the first man who wanted to know good and evil, and he perished in that wisdom. His crime is the fruit of his own wisdom. But the Christian can no longer fancy that he is wise. He must have no high opinion of his own schemes and his own plans. And he finishes with this. He says, one extreme thing must be said. To forgo self-confidence and self-conceit and to associate with lowly means and all soberness means to consider oneself the greatest of sinners. To consider oneself the greatest of sinners. It sounds almost like an exaggeration. I've pondered that verse in 1 Corinthians, excuse me, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15. Paul says that he is the chief of sinners. Can Paul be serious? Is Paul serious? Does he really think he's the chief of sinners? He's an apostle to the Gentiles. The church wouldn't exist to Gentiles if Paul wasn't there. He's the one who is responsible for the church blowing up in the Roman Empire. And he calls himself the chief of sinners? How can it possibly be? Because Paul is so attuned and aware of his own heart's possibilities and potentials that he can say it. I was discussing this with Vanessa this morning, and I said, I I think I've started to understand what Paul is talking about. Because the things that I've thought, the things that I've thought about other people, the desires I've had, are they're, they're, they're wicked. They're atrocious to God. I don't know what your thoughts and desires are. I don't know what you think about, and you don't know what your neighbor thinks about in the quiet recesses of their mind, when they're alone, when they're driving, but you do know what you think. You do know what you are capable of, and you do know that you're just as worse as anybody else, and maybe the only reason that you're not like somebody else, the murder on death row, is because the seeds in your heart were just never watered to that degree, because God in his mercy restrained you and saved you. But you see in yourself the ability and the possibility. So for us to ever have this kind of ministry in our church, for us to ever become a lowly, loving kind of people, we must be able to say and learn to say, we are the chief of sinners. I am the chief of sinners. I am the chief of sinners. And the second, as we've already said, of course, is that this description here is not a checklist. This description here is love personified. What makes a Christian love is that they've experienced it before they do it. Before it's a behavior, it's a radical experience. It's a radical encounter with the love of God. In the face of Jesus Christ. If love is just a behavioral checklist, then you're not a Christian. If love is just a behavioral checklist, then you're not a Christian. Because love is first an experience before it's a behavior. 
It's the love of God seeking you and chasing you when you were yet a sinner and far from him. Jonathan Edwards, a Christian finds beauty. A Christian finds a sense of the beauty when they see what Jesus Christ has done and then their hearts are inclined to him. He doesn't bring to you your happiness. He is your happiness. He is your joy. He is your life. He is the love that you don't deserve but is radically yours and he continues to give it and to give it and to give it and to give it and never needs to receive back because all the fullness is his. You know, there's a, I'll close with this. I don't remember who said it. I think it was Edwards. But he said, of all the attributes of God, God's holiness or God's aseity is an attribute that is of no practical value to us. But it's simply an attribute that we can look on and gaze on for its loveliness and for its beauty. That God is altogether holy. He is altogether different than you and I. And that immediately doesn't have any practical benefit to us. But it's simply beautiful in what it is. That there is a God who is self-existent and stands apart from you and me. And who has perfect love within himself. And that God voluntarily chooses to set radical and massive affections on you. So that you can enjoy and experience all that he is. And when you and I taste that radical kind of love. Love that did not need to be loved back. Love that simply sought you to create something beautiful. When we taste that, when we experience it, when we savor it, then and only then it'll make us a loving people. It'll allow us to slowly begin to manifest the kind of love that we've experienced. And when we fail, when we miss it, we have the grace to repent. We have the forgiveness that is ours in Jesus Christ to come back to the cross and come back to the Lord's table like we're going to do right here in a minute. To come to the table and receive yet again. This is a table that Jesus has laid and set for you. And he's the one who has said come. Come and eat. Come and feast. He who has no money, come buy and eat. Come and feast. Let us pray. Father, we are grateful for your love towards us in Jesus Christ. We pray, Lord, that we would savor it. We would relish in it. We would dance in it. We would enjoy it. We would experience it, God. If we don't experience it, then we can't go from here. If we don't experience your love, then we cannot go up from here. If love for us is just a behavior, not an experience, then we will never progress in becoming more like you, Lord. But if we can experience your grace and love and your mercy through the gospel, through Jesus Christ, then and only then will you actually make us to be a people who can love one another because everything that we've wanted to receive is already ours. It's ours in the gospel. We're grateful and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.